Come join the ABA at the Space Coast Birding Festival in Titusville, Florida, January 23rd through the 28th, 2019. It's one of the largest birding and wildlife festivals in the U.S. and one of the best places to go birding in January. Florida scrub jays, snail kites, loads of wintering waterfowl at Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge. We can't wait to see you there. Get more information at scbwf.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and welcome to season three. I mean, we don't really do seasons here, but this is the first episode of what will be our third full year of doing this podcast. Happy New Year list and happy new bird of the year, which if you've been following us on the social medias, you know is Red-Billed Tropic Bird, which is our logo bird. An appropriate choice for our 50th anniversary, our our golden jubilee, if we were royalists or not, by the way, unless we're talking about Royal Turn or King Eider or Emperor Goose, in which case, sign us up for the monarchy. But that logo bird is red-billed tropic bird, mostly stylized now. But in older ABA logos, it was more ornithologically accurate, which we love around here. This is our first bird of the year that doesn't actually breed in the ABA area, which admittedly is a little odd, but that sort of goes back to the historical anomaly that was the choice of this species as the ABA logo bird. That decision was made in 1971 with our very first logo. The organization had only been around for a couple of years then. And that logo was designed by Guy Tudor, a fairly well-known bird illustrator. You may recognize him. He did the illustrations for the first big book of South American birds. He's also a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, so a pretty big get in those days for a relatively young organization. I'm, I'm going to describe that first logo to you now, but if you want to see it, you can go to aba.org slash B-O-Y. That is the Bird of the Year page. But it is a circle with the sort of overlapping globes Overlapping globe, I guess, showing both hemispheres. Western hemisphere is sort of overlapped a bit by the Eastern hemisphere, which is a little weird because we're a North American organization, but whatever. I'm, I'm not a MacArthur genius. This is meant to evoke the old, you know, double barrel binocular image, uh, which you see on TV and movies all the time, which we also know isn't what binoculars look like when you look through them, unless they're out of, out of alignment. Again, but I am not a genius. But in front of those globes is a red-billed tropic bird from beneath as one usually sees them, which, according to Tudor, represents the rare bird, but also the far-ranging qualities of the hobby and sport of birding. And this makes some sense. The ABA was founded primarily as a quote-unquote serious birding organization, you know, whatever that means. For some, that means listing and traveling and twitching, and that is that's probably true at the beginning. Uh, but in more recent decades, that has meant that you take birds and birding seriously, which is not necessarily a thing that is dependent on your list or your passport stamps. What has not changed, though, is that seeing a red-billed tropic bird, or heck, any tropic bird, is an amazing experience. They are otherworldly birds, a fact not lost on Linnaeus when he gave it the name Phaethon Aetherius, you might recognize Aetherius as being similar to the English word ethereal, heavenly, same root. He knew what was up. 
And even though the ABA has changed from a listing organization with a community to more of a community organization uh, with people with lists, people still feel very close to this sort of odd logo bird. Around 10 years ago, we considered changing it to something more accessible. And the overwhelming majority of members wanted to keep the Tropic Bird. And it still works, you know, if you tweak the perspective a little bit, which is sort of what our Bird of the Year artist Megan Massa did. Instead of looking up, focusing on the bird as Tudor did in our original logo, this year's Bird of the Year art looks down on a boat full of birders pointing with arms and binoculars and camera lenses at, at the Tropic Bird, enjoying it together. In a way, you know, we want the Bird of the Year and our 50th year to be about birders reveling in this experience, both of seeing a tropic bird or a birding together more generally. That is what the ABA is all about, is what birding is all about. I think we, we need that more than ever. I hope you'll come along with us as we explore that this year. On the show this week, I am not quite done with the EEV, our outgoing bird of the year. I'm going to talk a little bit about what we learned about it in the last year, or what I learned about it. But first, 2019 Bird of the Year artist Megan Massa is joining me. Her red-billed tropic bird image will be featured on the cover of the February 2019 issue of Birding Magazine. Yes, there will be stickers too. They're very cool. They have a gold outline. Uh, this is the first cover art we've had that exists entirely in the digital realm. That is fascinating. She is fascinating. She will be with me right after this week's Rare Bird Focus. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the second half of December 2018, first part of January 2019. CBC's produced a lot of good birds in the ABA area this week. There were a lot of mid-level rarities, kind of records in the 6th to 12th record varieties. Uh, nothing huge in the ABA area this week, but we do have a couple firsts to report this time around. In North Carolina, a Golden Crown Sparrow in Currituck County in the northeast part of the state is a first record. That one has stuck around for quite a while. A lot of people have gotten to see that. Notably, it was not the only Golden Crown Sparrow in the east. New York also had one coming to a feeder in Delaware County. County that was not a first there, though. In Montana, an adult Hearman's goal. I can never get that one right. Hearman's goal, Herman's goal. At Fort Peck is a first for that state. An excellent record for the continent's interior for this declining species that is very closely tied to the immediate coast. Other goal records of note, Colorado's third record of slaty-backed goal was seen at a Larimer landfill. We're certainly seeing a lot more of those birds. I think people are getting a lot better at identifying them, uh, along with a Glockaswing goal, which is also noteworthy for the state. Uh, this is a short taste of the rarity landscape in the ABA area for the period. For the whole hog, check out the ABA blog every Friday or join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. The list of Bird of the Year artists is an impressive one featuring well-known artists like Doug Pratt, Julie Zikafus and David Sibley, among others. And, and this year, we add multimedia bird artist Megan Massa to that list. Her experiences have, have run the gamut from the hobby side of birding to research to art. And her image of the 2019 Bird of the Year, a red-billed tropic bird soaring over a boat full of birders, will grace the cover of the February 2019 issue of Birding Magazine. It's a really striking image. She really knocked this one out of the park. Uh, she is with me now to talk about birding, bird science, bird art. I, I feel like we could go in a lot of directions, Megan. Um, welcome. Thanks for joining me and, and congrats on the uh, really great piece of cover art. 
Thank you, and uh, it's really it's really great to be able to talk about it finally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I want to talk about that that piece of art first. Um, I, I really love the angle, you know, that sort of omniscient view coming from the top of the bird, which is you know not the way you typically see tropic birds. One of the things I really like about bird art as opposed to photography is that you can imagine these perspectives that are sort of impossible for a bird, for a birder or a photographer. You know, what, what appealed to you about this angle uh, or this, I don't know, this, this sort of tropic bird's eye view of this species? Yeah, um, it wasn't actually my first thought to take it up that high. Um, we went through a lot of different ideas for this particular piece and all of those actually made it into the final cover yeah, um, on the gatefold yeah. in particular. So I started out with this idea of looking up through the birders at the bird, getting kind of a much more visceral, like how you as a birder would experience the bird. You're on the deck of the boat, you're angling your binoculars or your camera up as it soars overhead. But then I, I had some other ideas as well, including kind of the other composition down below where there's a focus on people on the, the bow of the ship and they're looking out at the bird, which is kind of on their level. And then to go for kind of something I felt was stronger visually and more striking while kind of simultaneously exploring an angle that you can't really get from a photo or real life. Taking it up also let me kind of explore the area that tropic birds are kind of out in the ocean. Um, and you can see the coastline in the distance and the human presence on the boat is much smaller, but still present, um, which was something that I kind of stressed a lot over of like, how how much do we want to include the human element? Um, so that was kind of my thought with that with that angle. Yeah, I, I know that that was sort of Jeff, the IBA president, Jeff Gordon's idea was to focus a lot on the people aspect of, you know, the communal aspect of seeing a tropic bird. The yeah, tropic bird has been the ABA's logo bird for, you know, for a long time, for decades. And um, it's it's kind of a weird choice in some ways and that it's it's not a bird that everyone sees a lot. You could sort of have to, you know, make a real effort to see it. It's not something that you're going to see on your regular bird walk. You have to go out on the ocean or go to a place where there are nesting tropic birds. Um, and so there's this sort of like effort-based communal aspect of birding that is, is really important with tropic birds. And I think that's as big a part of you know, the ABA's 50th year as as the bird itself. Uh, and I think you did a really great job capturing that. Thanks. Can, can you talk a little bit about your, your process? I think you might be the first bird of the year artist to create the cover digitally rather than on paint and paper. Yeah. Um, so I think that this was definitely a departure from how the bird of the year art is typically done, both in the media and in kind of that, that focus on the human presence in the image. And for most art that just depicts kind of a bird in its habitat, so my process, this was done entirely digitally. I've been working in various media my whole life, but um, ever since I got my first little drawing tablet, I guess a little over 10 years ago now, I've hmm. been wow. working primarily digitally, um, whether that's in Photoshop or various other kind of use-alike programs that are out there. And what this lets me do is be a lot more experimental in how I'm working you have a lot more options to kind of cut up what you've done, um, reposition it, resize it, move things around, um, play with way, different ways you could color it or paint it and do things like use a 3D model of a boat for reference. So there's kind of a lot of options there and kind of being able to build things up layer by layer and move things around. So while I was working on the composition, for example, I could move the tropic bird wherever I wanted on the image. Yeah. Which yeah, is definitely so cool. not something you can do on paint and paper <laughs> right. if you no, have to absolutely. repaint the whole background around it. 
Yeah. So what, if I could ask like a hardware question, like what, what mm-hmm. actually do you use to create an image like that or any of your images? I have a Wacom Bamboo Fun tablet. It's not like an Apple iPad tablet. It's just a kind of a slate gray about the size of like an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. There's no screen on it. Um, and it has a pen attachment that has a pressure sensitive tip oh, and cool. a pressure sensitive eraser tip on it. So using that, I am able to look at the screen, draw on the on the pad and have it map to the screen exactly. and The way this kind of works is it requires a bit of hand-eye coordination, but you kind of get into the rhythm of drawing as if you were looking at the piece of paper where your your pen was actually touching down. And that brush that it, you know, the the tip of the pen can function as a brush or as more of a watercolor look or as a pen or a pencil or whatever you have kind of in your digital brush library, which I definitely have a lot of brushes that I used on this. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that's like nice for an artist. You you know, as you say, you can really experiment with a lot of different ways to, to render that image. Um, so how, so I guess I, I imagine you can like zoom in and zoom out and stuff and like, you know, do fine scale and and large scale stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. at will, I imagine. Yeah, that was actually one of the more interesting things about this piece. It's a bit larger than I've ever really worked digitally. I typically work a bit smaller in terms of like pixel count and like how far you can actually zoom in on the image. Um, And being able to kind of go this big, let me zoom in really far. And like, you can't see it in the finished project because it's, you know, on paper. But if you are zooming in on the digital image, there's, you know, there's people on the boat and I, I painted out all those little people. And oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I threw in, <laughs> I threw in some, some faces in there that aren't going to make it onto the final, the final image that people are going to see. But it was fun to be able to go in that small and also pull back and kind of see the same level of detail further out. Were they, were they people you knew? Like you could throw like a little Easter egg for people that, uh, burning, burning companions yeah. that you have? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of them are um, the same figures that appear elsewhere on the cover. I oh, kind right. of yeah, took yeah, those yeah. same people designs and, and put them at all scales. Um, and others uh, are, are people who may or may not recognize themselves if I, if I send them a, a little image of it representing from the William and Mary Bird Club. Oh, that's cool. That's great. Um, so, so which came first for you, the, the birds or the art, or were they, you know, just sort of always tied together? Um. Well, I've I've kind of been into art my whole life. I was always, you know, the the drawing kid, the like, oh hey, can you draw me a whatever kid? Right. Yeah. Um, and going forward, I didn't take that many official scholarly art classes. Um, I took an oil painting class in college that I think was pretty foundational in how I kind of approach art now in terms of color and shape. But I've always been into drawing. Um, I've done a lot of like pet portraits for people and that's a great way to, you know, make Christmas gifts for people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I saw that on your website. There's some really nice stuff. Yeah. I was going to actually send your name to some people I know that I think might be really interested <laughs> in that. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a, a couple of those I'm actually going to get back to right after we finish talking. Oh, here. Very good. Yeah. Uh, and the birds came later for me. I wasn't really into birds at all growing up. I didn't really know anything about bird watching. Although I do remember when I was in, I guess, middle school, um, my older sister had a Sibley East for uh, some class that she was taking. And I would thumb through it and just kind of look at the pictures and look at these, you know, they're, they're small in the, in the kind of more pocket-sized Eastern edition. But I was just kind of fascinated by these little pictures, um, although the actual interest in birds themselves didn't come until later when I went to college and got really into it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and I w- that brings me to, uh, uh, and that's a nice segue to my next question. You, you know, you were really influential in the creation of a, a bird club at William and Mary College, where you went to school. That That's sort of where you came on the ABA's radar. Can you talk a little bit about how that club came to be? You know, the, the community there at, at William and Mary, from which it is I uh, hatched, to use a fairly terrible bird <laughs> pun. <laughs> yeah, 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 sorry about um, that. I wasn't actually involved in the... F- the original founding of the club it was founded in 2014 um, by Nick Newberry, who was the first president of the club. And I actually came to it in my freshman year. There's like an activity fair during your freshman year of college where you're shepherded around looking at all these tables where people have set up their little trifolds trying to convince mm-hmm, you to mm-hmm. come to their club meetings. Um, and if I remember correctly, Bird Club didn't really have much. It was just kind of one person sitting at a table with like a little card that said like this is bird club so i kind of thought to myself like well this looks silly i'll do it ironically (laughs) and uh you know i ended up catching the bug after going on a couple of walks and started meeting some really great people um i got seriously involved in the club when i kind of reached out to everybody and started saying like oh you know i'd like to do more um how about this bird of the week feature that I I had as an idea for our our weekly club emails. Um, And that actually started as something that I just did on a little whiteboard outside my dorm room. The first bird of the week was a ruby crowned kinglet, which was my spark bird. um, Just because I never realized that birds could be so, so small, so fast and have such, such endearing little personalities. Absolutely. Um, It started out as just a drawing of a ruby crowned kinglet and like a fun fact about it on my whiteboard. And then I, you know, drew that up again digitally and sent it off to the club. And we started doing a feature in the weekly emails. And from there, my involvement kind of grew to coordinating those emails and kind of getting more involved with walks and leading walks as I got more confident in learning birds. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty voracious for me in terms of like how quickly I threw myself into it. Um, Birding can be like that. Yeah. 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 That's what I found in my experience with other people, too. Um, like making flashcards and getting field guides and trying to study up and, and learn and go on chases. So it was kind of all a very quick downward slide from there into <laughs> just full on like birding all the time, go outside, can't not look at birds. Right. I actually stopped being able to study outside. I originally like would go down to a little dock we had on campus and sit there and do my work, but I couldn't because oh, I yeah. hit that point in birding where you know enough but there's also enough that you don't know when you're yeah. hearing things singing that you're just like, I, what is that? I don't, I don't know. I have to go look. I don't know what that is. Yeah. I, this is stressful. This isn't relaxing anymore. <laughs> yeah. So you're just this hyper awareness, I think is really uh, a characteristic of birders when they're not birding. Like I, I speaking for myself, like I am awful at like outdoor weddings uh, because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I had a friend that got married at this little farm uh, one time and I, I kept an eBird checklist uh, of everything I heard. It was actually pretty good. It was kind of out in the woods and you know, I think I had like oven burden and things like that. You wouldn't necessarily expect in an outdoor wedding. It was great. And my sister's wedding this, uh, this past summer, I did the same thing. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, having those checklists to look back on also, I think is a great way to kind of remember those experiences. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, do you have any sort of, uh, insight into, you know, college age birders as kind of a new unique subset of birders, uh, and, and recruitment of college age birders? What is it about birding that, that can be appealing to people in that, in that, uh, age group? Yeah. Um, this was actually something that we talked a lot about at that, um, ABA convention in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, William and Mary was the only college bird club there. And 
I guess for college age birders, I don't think there's a lot of outreach. Um, when you yeah. think of like young birder efforts, it's it's kids who are in like middle school, high mm-hmm. school, elementary school, and trying to get them involved and pick up binoculars for the first time. Um, college students are, I think, kind of an under what's the word? Uh, a demographic that's not reached out to. Uh, uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. So college students are this group of people that are kind of primed to take up birding because you're away from home, you're looking for new things to try, you oftentimes have your own transportation, um, you're looking for friends. Yeah, and you have a fair amount of free time. Yeah, definitely. Um, And in often cases, you're living somewhere where there's kind of an immediate access to the natural world. Some campuses obviously are more urban, but a lot of places will have some kind of green space. And, you know, there's birds everywhere, so... Yeah, absolutely. To tying it to sort of the greater birding community, it seems like a lot of people really get into it when they find, you know, their people, you know, you find people mm-hmm. that are interested in the same thing. And and that's not just a college age thing. I mean, I've seen it with, you know, adults, young professionals, re- recently retired people, they come to a bird club meeting and they're suddenly, you know, surrounded by people who are unapologetically enthusiastic about about this yeah. thing. And it's, it's really easy to get, uh, really easy to get hooked just because you're surrounded by that, by that interest, by that passion. Yeah, that was definitely it for me. Um, the, you know, the people that I met through the William and Mary bird club, the people who were on the kind of the administrative side of the club and people who were very active members. Um, those are the people who went on to be, you know, my best friends in college mm-hmm. and the most supportive people that I knew for the most part. So it's definitely been an experience for me of having great community, um, finding really great mentors, um, it's, you know, for some people, it's a teacher that they had, and I've, I've had some really great kind of birdie professors. Um, but for the most part, the people who introduced me and kind of taught me the basics were other people in the club. So yeah. that was very influential in choosing to continue. Yeah. I'm going to jump back into the art, art mm-hmm. stuff again. Uh, you did an internship with the Smithsonian Institute, uh, a scientific illustration uh, internship. You've you've done a lot of really cool, very ornithologically accurate drawings, and also some stuff that's a, a little more a uh, little more you know creative. Do you see a difference between those things? How how do you approach a scientific illustration versus something that's more uh, arty? I guess, for lack of a better word, the scientific illustrations that I was doing at Smithsonian, those were all beetles. So oh, I was oh, yeah. doing work under a very high powered microscope drawing these very accurate, like down to the little settee on the legs, um, yeah. diagrams of these um, newly described or undescribed beetle specimens that they had in their collection. And these were flea beetles. Yeah, they were, you know, they're smaller than the size of your pinky nail. So it was a different level of uh, attention to detail. Yeah, I saw I saw some of the examples on your on your website. There's some pretty neat stuff. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I Anytime people draw insects, I don't know, there's something really interesting about insect illustrations. Uh, I think it is that attention to detail that is necessary that is so fascinating. Yeah, I think that insects are kind of so alien to us in yeah, that we never see them point. up that close. And to have kind of a detailed drawing that's more than like, you know, a splot of red on a canvas, that's a ladybug. Um you kind of don't have the leeway that you have with, with larger animals. Whereas on a bird, if you're drawing a wing and you kind of use gesture to get a sense of, you know, the spread of the wings, you're not necessarily counting every single primary. Whereas when you're drawing an insect, if I drew a bug and I sent it back to my boss and it was sent back like, oh, the pronotum margins need to be wider on this species. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know what that means, (laughs) but I guess I'll do it. Yeah. So it's a lot of kind of learning what the details are that people look for in kind of other, other systems that you're drawing. Yeah. Which do you enjoy more or do you find, you know, things you enjoy in, in both aspects? 
Uh, I definitely have more experience doing the kind of more freeform stuff where it's larger animals and landscapes and stuff like that. Um, drawing the beetles was interesting. Um, I'd love to get more experience doing scientific illustration and yeah. kind of mastering more technical aspects of, of my work. The, uh, the tropic bird was, was fun because uh, it's kind of, it's, it's larger and you're definitely looking for the technical details, but at the same time you have kind of leeway in, in how exactly the feathers are, are being patterned and how it looks from that certain angle. So yeah, no, it's, it's neat. There's a, a lot of different. there's a lot of neat detail in the back. I th- I, know, I thought that ah, that part of the that part of the piece was really cool to me. It's not a part of the bird you see too often. Yeah, definitely not from uh, from that angle. As, as we talked about, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, in addition to being a hobby birder, you've done you know a fair bit of work on sort of research projects on a number of different species. Uh, what birds have you worked with, and which ones have you enjoyed the most? So, as an undergraduate at William and Mary, there was this program. Um, through the biology department that was in collaboration with Cornell and Tulane, working on a population of red-backed fairy wrens in Australia. Now, these are birds oh, that very I think cool. most Americans aren't very familiar with. Um, they're about the size of a chickadee or a little bit smaller, actually. Um, the males are jet black with this scarlet kind of cape on their mantle and like scapulars and they're very striking, very, very small. Um, so we were following around a color banded population of these birds and we all got to do kind of whatever research project we wanted. I was working with a partner and we were doing kind of behavioral ecology and uh, a bit of habitat work with them. My project was looking at the possible costs of bright coloration in these birds. So we typically think about birds that have this dimorphic appearance where the males are really bright and the females are dull as, you know, being that more attractive appearance, but also potentially carrying risk of detection or predation from this kind of ostentatious behavior. And in the red-backed fairy wrens, not all of the males actually breed in that bright plumage. Um, so I was really interested in kind of, oh, really? huh. yeah, the function and aspect of the color in them. So we looked at the uh, the reaction of these birds to predator playback, um, kind of how how the bright males versus the dull males responded to kind of the immediate theoretical presence of a predator. Um, but I also kind of brought the art aspect into it by doing um, these model trials. So I 3D printed um, a 3D scan of a fairy wren that Cornell provided me. And then I actually painted those to match the spectrometry data for their actual color. So we set those out, the bright and dull in pairs, and trained a camera on them. And I actually have pictures of kookaburras swooping down and trying to eat the models. (laughs) Just gulp. So that was a lot of fun. That's kind of how I got my start in research. Um, After I graduated, I've done a variety of fieldwork with different species. I worked over the summer with red-headed woodpeckers up in Minnesota, which was a lot of fun. Um, They have a lot of personality, and I I definitely appreciate them. Yeah, I appreciate them more here now that I've gotten back from that. So we were following them around and doing kind of uh, nest monitoring and some telemetry with them. So that was really interesting. And then most recently, uh, I was in North Dakota banding sawwet owls at a banding station. Oh, cool. Yeah, Yeah. that was a lot of fun. Those are amazing. On your Twitter feed, you have a lot of uh, cool... Uh, little cartoons of uh, your work with the redheaded woodpeckers. Do you find yeah. inspiration in in places like that? Definitely. Kind of whatever you see when you're out birding or doing field work is more than just whatever you're focusing on. And I think kind of every day out in the field can kind of have its own story, 
whether that's something interesting a bird did or something that happened to you, or if it's, you know, bison overrunning the parking lot where you're trying to ban <laughs> birds, or if right. it's a tree coming down or finding, you know, a bird's leg bands inside an owl pellet. There's always <laughs> some kind of story. So yeah. it's very interesting to explore that through through a comic medium, which I think is easier to communicate those kinds of short stories with. No, it's great. And um People who can take these kind of funny situations and turn them into a visual medium so that they can share more more widely. I can't do that, so I have a obviously an appreciation for people who who can. It, it really you know takes you there, and it, you know so much of that is universal, especially uh, you know the occupational hazards of being a, a bird researcher with with bison and things of that nature. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely been really inspired by some other bird comic artists out there. There's mm-hmm. people like Bird Strips and uh, a webcomic called False Knees and some others that kind of give a lot of expression to these birds too. They don't really emote like people, but they definitely have personalities and stories to tell. Yeah, absolutely. Megan Massa is a researcher, a birder, a bird artist. Her red-billed tropic bird is the official bird of the year art and will grace the cover of the February 2019 issue of Birding Magazine. It's it's really wonderful. Uh, you can see it now all over ABA social media and at aba.org slash B-O-Y. That's bird of the year. Uh, you can see more of Megan's stuff at her website. It's meganmassa.com. And in addition to the bird, she does dog portraits. We talked about that. They're, they are lovely. She's also at Megan Draws Birds on Twitter. Hey, thanks, for, thanks for talking with me and congratulations again on the on the great piece of work. Thanks, and uh, thanks for having me. The ABA area has included Hawaii for just over two years now, and, and I'll be honest, the change has yet to really affect my day-to-day birding. I was not much of an ABA lister before, though I do keep track of my total. As an aside, I am pretty close to a milestone, and I have more or less accepted that it is going to be a split that gets me there. Oh, well. I accept that there are people who did and still oppose the inclusion of Hawaii in the ABA area. I am not going to make an argument otherwise here. I will say, however, that I do appreciate its inclusion because it made me more aware of Hawaiian native birds and their situation. Like many North American birders, I'd wager I was woefully ignorant about pretty much all of them, with the possible exception of the Nene. It is the state bird after all, and the trivia that in me remembers that sort of thing. And the EEV, which I always pronounced wrong. If the EEV as Bird of the Year 2018 did anything, it's got me to stop calling it EEWI. I didn't really know about the honeycreeper extinction crisis except as an abstraction. I didn't know about how bad things are on Kauai or about rapid ohia death or any of the strange and wonderful American birds that have blinked out over my lifetime. I do now even though I frequently get my Apopanis mixed up with my Akikaes and Akoikoes. At least now I have a bird that comes to mind, many of them, actually, when I consider what's going on there and my own obligation to those birds as a citizen of the United States. And I'll be honest, I, I don't know that I would have done that if not for the inclusion of Hawaii in the subsequent choice of Eevee for Bird of the Year last year. I was, I mean, I can't say content in my ignorance, but I was certainly blissfully uninformed. And I could just be saying this because that was sort of the intention of the whole thing. Uh, Being on the staff of the ABA means that I am sort of privy to all the institutional discussions that are part of the bird of year choice. Although Evie felt very obvious that year in the same way that red-billed tropic bird felt for this year. But I would wager that there are quite a few of you out there who went on a similar journey. And for that reason, EEV was more than a great piece of cover art or an awesome t-shirt. Of course, it was both of those things. 
It was an opportunity to learn more about the world. My concern for Hawaiian birds is heightened. My ability to marshal arguments in favor of their protection is greater, and my wardrobe is certainly advanced by one great t-shirt, and it is very cool. So thanks, Eevee, and bring on the red-billed tropic bird. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization. The best way to help support this podcast and any of the free resources that the ABA provides to the birding community in North America is to join the ABA. We have an online membership. I don't know if you if you knew about that. It was just like a regular membership, except that you receive all of the publications on the web. You're a pretty web-savvy person. Look at you. You're listening to a podcast, after all. It's 30 Yankee dollars. That's $2.50 a month. This is a great option. If you are an international listener or you move around a lot, anyway, it is out there, 30 bucks, e-membership. You can get more information at aba.org slash e-member. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He always he always thought it was a great shame that the ABA logo wasn't a juvenile horn lark, but it was labeled as a Sprague's pippet, you know, as a warning against stringiness. Technical production is by John Lowry. He thinks that the best bird for the ABA logo, and he makes a strong case for this, one that actually represents the growth of the organization coast to coast over the last 50 years is Eurasian Collared Dove. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who went round and round the other day about whether Palm Warbler was the right bird for the ABA logo, finally deciding not because it's the one species that What's This Bird members can never seem to identify. We're online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. You know, we considered joining with the American Basketball Association to jointly launch a bird slash basketballer of the year. We chose Eastern Meadowlark. They chose Basketball Hall of Famer Meadowlark Lemon. Make 2019 the year of the ABA Meadowlarks. We're putting that one on ice. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening.